You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, Session 1. And fellas, I'm ready to get up and do my thing. I'm about to get into it. Let me count it off. One, two, three, four. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Ruffini. We're coming at you with information, education, and motivation for drumming and beyond. What's up, everybody? Nick Ruffini here with the Drummer's Resource Podcast, and I got my buddy Daniel Glass on the show today. Come to know Daniel through studying with him for a while and hanging with him in L.A. and New York, and it's really great to have him on the show. I'm going to read a little bit from his website. It's going to sound a little weird because it, it got I lost the audio, so I had to re-record it. But So this is from his website. Daniel Glass is an award-winning drummer, author, historian, and educator. He is widely recognized as one of today's foremost authorities on classical American drumming. A member of the pioneer swing group Royal Crown Review, since 94, Daniel has recorded and performed all over the world with many top artists, including Brian Setzer, Bette Midler, Liza Minnelli, and Kiss frontman Gene Simmons. And for the past two years, he has been voted one of the top five R&B drummers in the world by readers of Modern Drummer and Drum Magazine. As an educator, Daniel has published five books and three DVDs, including the multi-award winning The Century Project and The Commandments of Early Rhythm and Blues Drumming. He's a regular contributor to publications like Modern Drummer, Drum, and Classic Drummer. He performs clinics and master classes globally, appearing at many of the world's top drumming festivals. His acclaimed clinics focus on the evolution of the drum set and the impact that this unique instrument has on American popular music. Man. Daniel, that's a lot, man. Thank, thanks so much for being on I know, the show. Like, I really appreciate it. I'm like, it. who the hell is that guy? That guy sounds like he's <laughs> accomplished. It doesn't sound anything like me. That's you, man. That's you. I'm sitting at home on the couch in my underwear right now, and I haven't bathed for three days, so I don't know what, I don't know where that's all coming from. Well, you get to do that when you're accomplished. I, I guess. Know? I guess. Man, it's uh, it's just before I before I say anything, I just want to say congratulations to you on, uh, on the, on the new podcast and website. And, uh, um, I've, I've known you for several years now and, uh, you definitely, uh, watching your way, uh, you know, watching your progress on your way up. So congratulations on all of it. And, uh, I'm really happy to be here. Thank you. Yeah. I really appreciate that. And while we're throwing congratulations around, you just got married. So congratulations to you and Christina. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Now I can really sit around in my underwear and nobody can, <laughs> oh yeah now it's 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 all over it's now. official you, can do you want yeah yeah <laughs> that's awesome man so and also uh touching on another thing that wasn't in the bio on your website you just released another book as well the roots of rock drumming uh it's a book dvd compilation with steve smith right yep that literally came out about uh 10 days ago and i'm really excited about it 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 you know, like all of my projects, is many years in the making. Um, this one, I, I worked on it pretty consistently for about a year. I, I um, it's basically a book of interviews that uh, the interviews were done by uh, Rob Wallace, uh, Paul Siegel, who are the two main owners of Hudson Music, and Steve, and uh, and then a few of my interviews are in there as well. And I essentially took transcriptions of all these interviews and edited them down um, into book form. So there's 22, I think, was the final count. And I wrote a little introduction for each one. Um, it was a mammoth task because every interview was like, you know, 50 pages or something. And I had to get them all down to like, 
between uh, I mean you know on a on a, a computer page um, you know say anywhere from uh, ten to say twenty five pages so uh, it was it was a lot of work and you know some of the guys when they speak you know these guys are drummers they're not uh, elocutionists and uh, so. <laughs> you know, they were sort of all over the map. They would start one sentence here, and then in the middle of the sentence, they'd switch gears and talk about a different subject, and then switch gears again. And by the time they got to the end of the sentence, they'd kind of touched on four things. So when you try right. to edit that all together and make something coherent out of it, uh, it's um, it can be somewhat challenging. But um, I really... And I remember, yeah. I remember talking to you back and forth when you were doing it, and you were just like, man, I'm just buried yeah. with these interviews. Yeah, it, it, was, it was pretty... Um, intimidating at first or just the sheer amount of of material to have to sift through but you know it, I, I honestly looked at it as an opportunity where somebody was paying me to to do research you know because right. guys that are in the book and i don't know if you want to get all into that right now but the guys that are in the book are some of the most legendary drummers out there and especially to me you know in in my uh in my world of of you know kind of historical styles of drumming and roots drumming and all that stuff that I'm really into, uh, to be able to like really kind of, um, you know, read these unedited interviews was, it was like a gold mine for me. You know, I, I mean, I know a lot about it and many of these guys I actually had already interviewed on my own and, and I'd known them for, for several years. Um, you know, cause I've been into this stuff pretty heavy since about 1999. But, um, anyway, uh, it was a great experience, and uh, it's an even greater experience <laughs> that it's done, and I can hold right. you know, the finished product in my hand and just go, okay, done. Awesome. Yeah. That's good to hear, man. That's good to hear. So let's, we'll, uh, we'll dive into that book in a few minutes. Let's kind of just give a quick backstory on, uh, you know, I know, where you're, I know you're from Hawaii, but uh, just, just a quick backstory on, on where you're from, how you got really into playing, and, uh, sure. and kind of where you're going as well. I grew up in Honolulu, Hawaii, which is a little bit weird. Most people are not from there. Um, or stay there because it's beautiful. <laughs> right. Um, but it is, it is weird because um, you're isolated on an island in the middle of the ocean. And, you know, the nearest place to you is, that's in the United States is 3,000 miles away. So right. um, it, it is a very isolated place. And... Um, when you get to be 18, you sort of have to make the decision. I mean, assuming you have the, the wherewithal to be able to, to go to the mainland, uh, you kind of have to decide, well, am I going to stay in Hawaii and just be here where, you know, you can get to the other, uh, other side of Oahu in an hour's drive. You can get around the whole island in about three hours. Um, mm -hmm. Or, you know, do I do I break out from, from for, for distant shores, which which really are distant, which means I'm going to be um, very far from Hawaii. So, um, you know, I made the decision I wanted to, 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 to go my way. I, I got into drumming, uh, because my mother was a, a modern dancer. And when I was a little kid, she broke her leg dancing. And so she was in a, uh, a hip length cast and couldn't, it effectively ended her career. So she started reaching out in other directions for creative, um, creative things to do. She's a very creative lady and, and, uh, um, so one of the things she did was she started taking drum lessons and I was a little kid and she would sometimes pick me up from school, take me to her lessons and I just instantly warmed to it. And, um, so when I was about seven years old or I think maybe eight, I can't remember, I started going to the same teacher 
who was the principal percussionist of the Honolulu Symphony. So my initial education was very formal. I studied on a snare drum and um, timpani lessons. Um, I have to say I was not all that into it, was not a great practicer, um, but I did love the drums. And I, you know, I remember my mom took me to see this movie, Ladies and Gentlemen, The Rolling Stones, which I think came out in like 74, 73, 75, somewhere around there. And I remember seeing that. That was kind of the first big rock and roll concert film I'd gone to. Because, of course, back then there was no computers and no YouTube. And, and is there a music scene know. down there, though? I mean, is there a big music scene in Hawaii? Oh, yeah, there was in the 70s, for yeah. sure. And a lot of artists came through. You know, I, first I saw like John Denver and Joan Baez when I was a kid, but the first big rock concert I saw was, was Fleetwood Mac Rumors. Oh, wow. And that, that totally blew me away. Um, my parents took us to see that as a family because they had gotten the Rumors album like everybody else had at that time. And so, you know, and it was funny because, of course, there's like, you know, this is, in the, this is 1977. Uh, or 78 so there's all this like pot smoke in the air and it's a big rock concert and we're like in the last row of the balcony you know and I'm sitting <laughs> there with my parents and my sister and of course after the concert you know we all have earplugs in after the concert my parents are like okay we never need to go to another rock concert ever right, again right and me and my sister are like man <laughs> i'm going to every rock concert that comes to every one i go to yeah <laughs> so that was cool the following year i got to see boston on the don't look back tour it was awesome stadium so I mean I saw some great shows when I was a kid. So anyway, all I'm of not that- even going to tell you what my first concert ever was. <laughs> New Kids on the Block. No, 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 no. Uh, oh, actually, the first one was uh, Danny and the Juniors. I saw him in Massachusetts. Cool. So that That's wasn't cool. that bad. The second one, Vanilla Ice at the Tower Theater awesome, in Philly. Dude. Yeah, blue right like turquoise limo and yeah. and everything. We all have those uh, skeletons in our closet. <laughs> yeah. You can't hold the young responsible for their uncool decisions because they're just trying to figure it all out. That was one of the main reasons I really got into playing, though, because I saw this guy do this drum solo with glow-in-the-dark sticks. And I was like, man. There you go. I mean, I wish young, I could. But... I wish I could find out who was on that tour. I don't know how I would ever do that, but... I'm still impressed by glow-in-the-dark sticks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, so anyway, uh, I got my first drum set at the age of 13, Immediately started playing in bands, and uh, I was I played in bands all the way through high school. I was um, one of the first one of the first bands I was in. I was good enough that I was always playing with guys who were older than me. So when I was in intermediate school, I was already playing in bands with high school guys, which was great because I got kind of thrown in. And that's huge. That's huge. Just being it is. You, know, you never really want to be is. the best guy in the band, right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And what was even cooler was that. The very this band that I was in through almost all of high school, we changed identities a bunch of times. They were always like kind of doing different things. Right. So but the first phase of this band was it was a Black Sabbath tribute band. We called them cover bands back then. There was no such thing as a tribute band, but we played like you know, we played some other stuff, Hendrix and and Cream and, you know, that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. Deep Purple. But mainly we played Sabbath tunes, which was awesome. Nice. You know, it was I was a huge Sabbath fan already. And um so anyway, blah, blah, blah. Long story short, I did all that in high school, and I continued to play in um, more formalized settings, marching band, concert band, jazz band. I did musicals. Um, you know, So I, I got a pretty well-rounded education Right. up until I went to college. When I went to college, unfortunately, I had the opportunity to study while I was in college, but I was really, you know, once I got to high school, I dropped the lessons and 
was into being Mr. Cool Rock Drummer Guy. Right. And I, I really wish I would have kept that part of things up. But I think the very formalized education I'd had and the one year of drum lessons that I did take on the kit kind of turned me off. Unfortunately, the teachers just were very kind of, you know, they looked down their noses right. at, at rock music and, you know, that whole kind of thing. Oh, well, you got to learn jazz. You got to learn classical. Sure. And, it, you know, it frustrates me because when I teach now, and, you know, a lot of teachers today, it's almost now that's the opposite. Kids only learn rock and they don't learn the roots, you know, jazz stuff or other styles. And it's like there, there should be a balance. You know, I think everyone should learn to read a little bit. Everybody should learn some rudiments. Everybody should learn, you know, those basic kind of things. And fine, play all the rock tunes you want, you know, or double bass stuff you want. Right. You know? and, um, so anyway, um, but, you know, it. So um, I played in a, a really successful band in college, actually, that was, um, it was a Pink Floyd tribute band. And again, this is in the early, mid-80s. There wasn't a lot of bands doing this kind of stuff. And we would play, like, the entire Dark Side of the Moon, the entire Wish You Were Here. Oh, awesome. We had, you know, I mean, we were in college, so we had limited means. But we would, you know, have some, you know, movies, psychedelic movies going behind us. And, and we had, like, the, the chick come out and sing Great Gig in the Sky with flowers in her hair. You know I mean? We tried to put some theatrics into it. And all the stuff that um, you were doing on the side, you were just practicing on your own, basically. So you weren't, like you said, you weren't taking any lessons or, or anything like that, just kind of shedding at home and, like, exactly. checking out just, some books. And, and I, I wish I could say that I was even shedding all that much. I mean, I was just basically playing in bands. The, the big change for me came when I got out of college. And I, I went to college at a school called uh, Brandeis University. Um, and I spent um, a, a summer in Boston after I got done with, um, with college. And I started studying with a guy named Bob Gulati. And Bob Gulati is a great drummer for those. Many people here on the, in the Northeast know who he is. He's a, a great legendary jazz drummer in the Boston area. He went to Berkeley in the early 70s. He studied with Alan Dawson and, um, you know, at a very pivotal time when Berkeley was a very small, intense place. And Steve Smith came out of there then, mm -hmm. a lot of different people. Um, and um, anyway, he just blew my mind. Uh, and I, I realized that, wow, you know... Um, there is so much to this that I didn't even think about, you know, that jazz studying jazz creates an infinite set of possibilities right. and that, you know, I could really, um, uh, exp you know, explode my mind. Sorry. I'm, I'm kind of waffling here, but at that point I had gotten a bachelor's degree in psychology and I really wasn't into psychology and I'd been in academic situations studying and taking, you know, heavy duty coursework and all that kind of stuff for, for many years. And I just sort of went, you know what, I want to really explore this drumming thing. So that's when I decided to become a professional. And that's what got me to, you know, get really serious. And after that, I was as serious as a heart attack. I, I got into woodshedding. Um, wherever I went in the world, I found a place to practice. And I, everything was geared towards, okay, I'm going gonna, gonna to set out to become a professional. Right. When did you, and I know you studied with, with Freddie Gruber for a while. When did you do that? Well, I, I went to, I spent a couple of years after I got out of college. Uh, I, I took a year off and traveled and I went to Israel actually, lived in Israel. It's a whole nother story. Uh, but I spent a year basically in the Middle East traveling and oh, just wow. like taking time off, you know? And then when I got back, I pretty much knew I wanted to go to music school, but I had no money. Mm -hmm. So I went back to Hawaii, lived with my parents for another year. 
and I spent like 80 hours a week working at a TGI Fridays to earn money. Um, and then every other moment I was woodshedding, I was starting to gig, starting to teach lessons, just starting to live the life a little bit more of a professional musician. Although, you know, I was, I was basically making my money as a waiter for that year, but I, it all, I had a plan in 91, I moved to Los Angeles and, um, went to the Dick Grove school of music specifically because of the faculty there. I wanted to study with, um, uh, sorry, Steve Houghton. Oh, okay. And, uh, he had been a guy that I had, I had gotten his books and really like loved his, his, he taught for the professional musician. You know, his styles books were all about, here's some professional situations. These are the styles you need to know. Here's how to read charts. Right, you know, right. I, I really liked his books. So he was teaching there at the time and I went to study with him and I got to study with Emil Richards, who's one of the most awesome. legendary studio professionists, played with Sinatra and, you know, was a legendary figure in the LA scene and a lot of other great people. Chuck Silverman, I studied Latin drum set with him. Um, and, um, and that was just a great experience. And, and after that, I really set about, uh, that was just a one year program. It was a lot, a lot like kind of like a Berkeley type of an education. Mm-hmm. And I studied harmony and theory and ear training and, uh, did ensembles and, um, mallet percussion, all of the hand percussion and Latin percussion stuff. So it was great because I learned, you know, about a Brazilian batucada and all the different parts for that and how those parts, not only what instruments they're played on, but how they're how they translate to the drum set. I right. learned about an entire Afro-Cuban percussion section and what th- each of those guys is doing and how they all relate to the clave. And so, you know, even though I don't necessarily play all that stuff, like I've had situations in, in recording sessions where, you know, I've created an entire Brazilian percussion section because I know exactly what everything's supposed to do. So I wouldn't say I'm a virtuoso on that. Right. Um, but, but it, it totally te- it totally translates to the kit. I mean, I, Absolutely. I think that the more... You know, the more rhythms that you know and the more styles of music that you know um, are going to translate. So whether you're going to even if you don't play jazz, you should at least know how to play jazz, you know, or or know how to play a babinga beat or or whatever it is. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, you know, it it uh, that stuff has served me really well. And, for example, on the, the Brian Sitzer Christmas tour, I have to play Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairies on uh i think it's dance the sugar bone fairies on glockenspiel and damn that is hard (laughs) (laughs) it is really hard and so just the little experience i had you know helped me to learn it and get it down a little bit better and what makes it so hard is that right in the middle it's it's in the middle of this nutcracker suite um medley that brian does that's eight minutes long and so it's all choreographed you have to jump up and keep playing the hi-hat with your foot while you're, you know, while you're playing that dance of the sugar plum fairies. And then when you finish, you've got literally about one and a half seconds to get back on the kit and bring the next section to right. the two in. So anyway, um, anyway, Freddie, you wanted to find out about Freddie. Right. Uh, when I got out of Dick Grove school of music, I was sort of like, okay, what now? You know, I didn't want to stop learning. I felt like that one year was a great start. And along the way, I'd been hearing Freddie's name from many other people. Um, and, um, you know, he was very kind of a very well-kept secret in Los Angeles. So um, I uh, just called him up, you know, about a month after I got out of school. And, oh, I'd seen a clinic with John Vatos Hernandez, who's the drummer for Oingo Boingo. 
And uh, Vatos was a longtime student of Freddie, so Freddie was at his clinic, and he introduced Freddie and said, "This is the most influential guy I've ever worked with." You know, and here's this like schleppy-looking New York Jewish guy wearing like a, a plain white undershirt, <laughs> jeans that are like way too high yep. on his midriff. You know, like big glasses, undershirt. With, yeah, big glass. You know, I'm like this guy. <laughs> but you know, I I went and studied with him starting in '92, and I studied with him for about four and a half years, and it was definitely an eye-opening experience. And it was as difficult as it was, and as painful as it was. Um, you know, studying with Freddie was not an easy experience, right. but um, but it it was truly an incredible experience as well. And and there was a, some amazing, you know, he truly was the Yoda of drumming as Neil Peart. All right, so you're in L.A. You're uh, you're do you know you start to you start to kind of get on the scene out there in L.A. You're studying with Freddie. I got with Freddie in '92. I got into the band Royal Crown Review in '94. I was pretty much full time, you know, hundred percent with RCR from '94 till about 2000. And in 2001, uh, by that point, I had started really getting into the research, you know, because. When I when I was involved with Royal Crown Review, we were playing all this cool, you know, older styles of music, um, rhythm and blues, rockabilly, western swing, ska, rock steady, uh, traditional swing, and you know, I was I had had a lot of training in jazz, but I really wasn't clear in my mind about what all these things were. And so, along my travels with RCR, um, I was trying every time I went to a music store or bookstore, I was trying to find instructional materials to teach me how to play you know, in these styles. And there really wasn't anything that was out there. So I, you know, started uh, in 99, I wrote articles from my uh, movement that RCR was uh, part of um, when that was at its peak. Uh, I, I got... Say, can you say that again? You you cut out there for a second. Oh, sorry. That's all right. Oh, when, when the retro was at its peak um, articles for Modern Drummer because they were very interested in what, what was happening with that. And that series of articles was called um, Swinging in a Modern Age. Okay. And I, I took that, that experience. It was a four-part series. And I said, wow, you know, I, I, I had sort of neglected the whole academic side of myself for that whole time since I'd left college in 88. And I'd really jumped in as a musician and really put all my time and energy into that. But I kind of noticed, and you may have noticed this too, the musicians, all they do is think about music. Right. And a lot of times it's sort of an unbalanced existence in a way, or at least for me it was. So I felt like, well, you know, I, I, part of me really loves to write and research and be a little bit more academic and intellectual about all this. So I, I, I sort of got into that. Um, and so that's when I started really researching and stuff. And, uh, and you started spent, doing interviews and, and all kinds of stuff, yeah, right? I started doing interviews everywhere. I would go all over the country. I would, um, dig up these guys. And, and the way I started doing it was not only book research, which I certainly did a lot of, but I also, and listening research. Um, but I, I also tracked down a lot of the drummers that had actually played on these songs or in these bands that were inspiring Royal Crown Review that I was learning about. So now when you were Louis Jordan's band, Louis Prima's band, uh, little, little Richard's band, Bill Haley's band. And then, you know, earlier, um, 
you know, swing guys like Louis right. Belson and, and uh, uh, Panama Francis and Nick Fatul and people like that. You know, just just all over the map. Um, everywhere I'd go, I'd dig these guys up and meet them and hang out with them and get to know them. That's awesome. So now when you were when you were doing all these interviews, were you looking at it just a way to better understand the music? Or did after you started doing a couple interviews, did the wheels start turning in your head and you're like, man, I could really you know, put this together and, and, and sort of package it and, and deliver it to people so they have a better understanding of this whole, this whole thing that happened in, you know, the last hundred years? Sure. Well, uh, at that point, it, it really was, I guess, like a fact-finding mission. I think what really inspired me actually was back in 1998, I had read Zorro's book, The Commandments of R&B Drumming. Mm-hmm. And about a year later, I met Zorro at the NAMM show, and we started working together. Maybe this is more like 2000, 2001. It was right after I'd done the Modern Drummer stuff. Um, and, you know, Zorro at that time was editing a magazine called Stick It. Um, and I don't know if you recall that magazine. It was pretty cool. It was a little bit like Drumhead today. In no, that I don't remember it that. Came with a, it came with a CD. So whatever the featured articles or featured artists were, um, you could get the CD that came with it and you could listen to whatever was, you know, it gave you a listening guide to what was, whatever that issue was about. Okay. So Zorro, after I'd written some stuff for Stick It, he was like, look, man, you know, why don't we take what you're doing? And I, I think I'd said to him, I'm really inspired your commandments book. I want to do something like that. So that was sort of the initial idea. And then eventually after a couple of years of working towards this, it sort of was like, well, let's just call what you're doing the next commandments book. And that's where the idea for the commandments of early rhythm and blues drumming came out. So that was, in, in essence, a prequel to Zorro's initial book. Zorro's initial book covered sort of funk and R&B stuff for, and hip-hop from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And my rhythm and blues book covered the 40s and 50s, sort of so what led up to where his book began. Um, right. And I think there's a lot of – I mean, would you agree that there's a uh, – there's definitely – well, yeah. I mean, you've said it. There's a lack of information in that realm. You know, like I, I think that a lot of people have done things on funk and rock and all that stuff, but really going back to the to the bare bones and to how it built up to the funk and rock stuff. Absolutely. You know, it doesn't seem like there's that much out there. Hardly like you said. anything, especially not there's 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 books about you know it's all really like what what was leading up to it was shuffles, and that's essentially the instructional component of the early. The Commandments of Early Rhythm and Blues Drumming is that it's a shuffles book. I mean, the book has like over a hundred right. shuffle examples. Um, it has eleven play along songs that are all different variations of shuffles. And what I learned in, in doing the study for that book, in addition to all the cool history and who the guys were and who the bands were and how that affected what came after it, because because early rhythm and blues was really the 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 key component in soul music, rock music, funk music. Um, you know, ska and reggae music, gospel music. I mean, it, it, it's super influential. Uh, so right. I learned that in studying the historical aspects of it. But what I learned from the groove and instructional aspects of it is that it's all shuffles. And the shuffle is this, like, unbelievably deep, deep groove that has a million different variations and, you know, was played differently in different regions of the country and all that kind of stuff. So those are the kinds of things that I started learning about and then it was like, well, you know, if you, if you understand rock in the 60s and 70s and you understand like where John Bonham say was coming from or where Mitch Mitchell was coming from or where um, 
Charlie Watts was coming from, then you realize they were all listening to these guys from the 40s and 50s. You know, that that was their main source of information. So, and a lot of those cats wanted to be jazz drummers, didn't they? And they just yeah, I mean, they were jazz drummers, right? They 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 considered themselves to be jazz drummers, but because you have to remember in the in the 50s, now we look back and we go, well, you know, Elvis was making rock and roll in the 50s. Bill Haley was making rock and roll, but at that time, rock and roll was a very new term. And certainly the drummers that had played on the seminal records even before it was called rock and roll, they didn't know what a rock and roll drummer was. There was no such thing as a rock and roll drummer, quote unquote. Right. They were all jazz guys, you know, that had come up playing swing music or bebop music and and were just figuring it out as they went along, listening to Little Richard's left hand or Jerry Lee Lewis's left hand or Chuck Berry's guitar style or Bo Diddley's guitar style or, you know, whatever. I mean, that's you know, that's how they or listening to someone like Muddy Waters, who was a, you know, a country boy who didn't even play a 12 bar blues in 12 bars. He would play it in 13 and a half bars or <laughs> sometimes he played in 10 bars. It was a feeling thing, whatever he felt it. So the, so guys like Fred Bilo at Chess Records had to learn who was himself, by the way, Fred Bilo was a trained drummer. He went to the Roy Knapp school, which is the same school Hal Blaine went to, the same school Buddy Harmon went to. Oh, wow. You know, all these guys were going there in the 1950s. And Fred Bilo came out and starts doing all these sessions at chess. And he realizes, man, I've got to learn how to play with these guys because these guys have no training at all. And they're just like playing a, ten, a 12 bar blues in 10 and a half bars. So, how am I going to play drums along with that? Because, right. you know, a drummer's job is to like formalize things and put things in a format and stand, you know, give something some structure. And so, how are you going to play drums in an unstructured way? Along with how to to match what these to guys, match are, what doing. These guys so, are doing, you know that's that's why um, it's so interesting to study that period because when you start really listening to what these drummers were coming up with, they were inventing stuff. They were inventing the modern lexicon of blues vocabulary, you know, or soul vocabulary, you know, and 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 to be there at ground zero, either interviewing them or reading about what they were doing or listening to the records after you've met them. And hearing them talk about it, and you go back and listen to the records again. I mean, this is the stuff that I've been doing for twelve years, right. you know, and I've been doing it, you know, for for all these different things. So I know we've kind of probably gotten off our our essential topic, but this was this is essentially what I was doing, and it was gold for me to meet these guys because it wasn't just like I would sit down with them for. I mean, a couple of them is like I interview them on the phone, never met them, right? But other guys like Earl Palmer or Buddy Harmon. I became good friends with them and I would go back awesome. again and again to them. Uh, you know, Earl was in LA so I could hang with him. Right. Buddy Harmon was in Nashville and we became so tight. He became a huge Royal Crown fan that I actually stayed at his house. I stayed oh, at nice. his house. Um, I, the, the last time that I saw him was about two years before he died. I actually, I was in Nashville doing some other things, but I went to his home, brought a video camera, interviewed him just like we're doing now, made a two hour, essentially in-depth interview and then i made a dvd of it and gave copies to his whole family so they would have some document of him man that's awesome that's awesome so you know these guys became my friends and then i started realizing oh now they're all going to start dying on me which you know of the 50 or 60 guys that i've interviewed at least a third are gone now oh man that's probably closer to half and that's just what's going to happen so you know then it became more about instead of just well i'll write a book or you know I'll, you know, document some of this stuff. It became like, man, we're losing this stuff. And these are my friends. And 
the impact that their work has had on us today is incalculable as far as when some kid sits down at their very first lesson and goes, doom, dat, doom, doom, dat, you know, mm-hmm. like somebody played that at some point for the first time ever. Right. And the evolution it took to get to that where, first of all, you got a hi-hat that's playing straight eighths. Second of all, you have a snare drum that's hitting a backbeat rim shot on two and four at all times. Third of all, you have a bass drum pattern that even goes, um, 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 you know? Right, right, right. Like, you can find the beginnings of all those things. You know, the, the, when did the hi-hat go from being shuffled to being a straight eighth feel? You know, so somebody like Earl Palmer, if you do a deep study of his work, you know, he, you can hear those evolutionary changes happening in what he's doing. And, you know, that's what I talk a lot about in that um, Commandments of Early Rhythm and Blues Drumming book is like, wow, here's some of the first times you hear a backbeat from start to finish on a record. And here are those records. Here's like five records where that feel is in between when the, when the, when the ride cymbal or hi-hat pattern is going from a shuffled pattern to a straight pattern. Here's some of the songs you can hear it in between. And by the way, if you learn how to play in this in-between style, when you go to, to do that wedding band, if you're trying to make a living as a musician, and they play some oldies you know, during the cocktail hour, and you can play that Chuck Berry song with that in-between feel, guess who's going to get the gig? Guess right. who's going to keep the gig? Guess who the band leader is going to call? You know, so there's, so, you know, there's very valid and practical reasons for learning these classic grooves. It's not just like, oh, well, you should learn about history because it's important. It's like... No, there's some really like down to earth reasons why you can turn this into money. Right. You know, I did. I mean, and if I can, certainly anybody can. Right, right, right. I totally agree. I think that I think that once in a while, a lot of people get overwhelmed. And I know it's even been overwhelming uh, for me over the years of just so, you know, you start out, you're playing rock. And then you hear about this stuff called jazz. And then you start playing jazz. And then you hear about. You know, then you start playing a shuffle and then you hear about these Latin grooves and then you hear about this and hear about that. So then you write them all down on a piece of paper and it's like, oh, my God, there's, you know, 30 different styles and and then there's these kind of different feels. So it's I, I think it gets a little intimidating because it's like, all right, where do I start? You know, it's like, where, yep. where, where do I start learning these styles to really get a grasp on? all of these styles. So it's like, Hey, can you play this? And maybe you're not the best at it, but at least have a working vocabulary of that style. I agree 100%. And this is part of the reason why I do what I do, why I write books about the history and evolution of, you know, a lot of the different kinds of gurus we play today, whether it's modern bebop. I mean, that's addressed in the century project. Um, you know, modern soul funk, R and B rock, you know, those are all addressed in the commandments of early rhythm and blues book and, and talking about how shuffles evolved into reggae and ska and, and those kind of things. Because I think we are living in a time where so much great music has been created and music has evolved so tremendously in the 20th century and in, and in continuing into the 21st century that we're sort of hard pressed to sort of get some footing, you know, mm-hmm. to, to sort of say, well, what is the context? You know, like, why am I supposed to do this? Or what does it all, you know, what does it all mean? So the Century Project, in a way, my DVD is sort of a big jigsaw puzzle. And I help just give people a lot of sort of um, overview 
of why we play the way we do. So would you say the Century Project is kind of taking the commandments of early rhythm and blues drumming and and you expanding on that and making it even more in depth and and really uh you know going cuz that that covers 100 years. How many years does the commandments of early rhythm and blues drumming cover? That covers um about two two decades, 1940 say to 1960. Um, okay, and then the century, the Century Project is from Century Project. What are the, the dates? Century of Project that? takes you from 1865, the end of the Civil War, up to 1965, and the Beatles at Shea Stadium. Now, can you can you walk us through that timeline sure. quickly? The reason, I mean, okay. all of this, like, and then, well, what I should say is that as I was reading and interviewing and writing and putting out, you know, these products. Um, I also started doing clinics around the same time because that's something I'd always mm-hmm. been interested in doing. And it was sort of like I realized that, that other than Steve Smith, who would put out his U.S., you know, his History of the U.S. Beat DVD in, you know, the early 2000s, that there was literally not one single educator on the scene that was, that was sort of out there regularly doing clinics about, history and evolution, at least any history right. or evolution that happened before the sixties. You got like Stanton Moore who does the funky thing, Zorro. But like, you know, there really wasn't anybody doing that stuff. So I thought, well, here's a market, you know, and let me see if I can put some of this stuff together. So I started doing clinics and that took a while to get off the ground, but eventually by the late two thousands that was that was really hap- starting to happen more and more. And um so in my clinics, I get I would get so excited about what I was sharing with people that I, the more I learned, the more I would put into the clinic. And where I would begin the clinic, well, I was like, well, okay, I could start in the 1920s. You know, well, I could say, well, I could start in the 30s with the swing era. That's really where I started. But then it's like, but then all this stuff happened in the 20s that if you didn't know that, you wouldn't know why it happened in the 30s. But then really, right. if you go back to the turn of the century in ragtime, you know, then you're going to understand why stuff happened with the drum set in the 20s. And then I started learning that, like, you know, everybody, originally the conventional wisdom was, well, the bass drum pedal is when the drum set started. That When the bass drum pedal was invented, that's when the drum set, when people started playing drum sets. And I know now, after watching your DVD, that that's not true. Yeah. That <laughs> that really... You see the first pictures of bass drum pedals and you know right. in the 1890s. But that's only when photographers and photography got advanced enough that somebody actually gave a crap about taking a picture of right, a bass right. drum pedal. You know what I mean? Like before that time it was like let's photograph somebody's face. Mm-hmm. Like that's what's important, you know. So I started digging and digging deeper and deeper and and I I realized that as early as the 1870s um you know, guys are talking about bass drum pedals and what was that like? And then I learned that guys were playing multiple drums together, kicking a snare without a pedal before that. And they were using, you know, their sticks to do all of that. They would play the bass drum and the snare drum all at the same time, sitting next to the drums, double drums, these right? huge bass drums. And that yeah. was a technique called double drumming. Yeah. And so, you know, finally I took it all the way back to 1865. And of course, you know, there's no reason why I started 1865 other than it's a good starting point because the Civil War ends. So African-Americans are liberated, essentially, emancipated, and for the first time can really start to participate in American society in a more mm-hmm. full way. 
although their influence had certainly been there all through the 1800s as well on the music that, that you know, was happening and how they played the music and how they were involved in military bands and marching bands. You know, so black musicians have, have been impacting right. American music for a long time. But 1865 was a good time. And also that was kind of around the time when this double drumming thing was starting to really become popular you know, and documented. So I thought, okay, that's a good place to start because that's really the beginning of the okay. drum set in a way. Um, I take it forward to 1965 because by the time we get to 1965, all of the elements of the drum set, the hi-hat, tunable tom-toms, crash cymbals, ride cymbals, um, you know, and the way that we use these in a popular music setting, meaning, you know, the typical doom chap, doom doom chap right. kind of rock beat, beat, um, and fills where you start on the high tom and go to the lower tom and then you hit a crash on beat one while hitting the bass drum, you know, and holding the sticks with a match grip. Um, all of that stuff now is really formalized. And I, and I use the final example as the Beatles at Shea Stadium because when the Beatles showed up in 1964 playing on Ed Sullivan where they, where they really impacted music in an enormous way just through that one televised appearance alone. That's like rock and roll has arrived or rock, yeah, rock know, and like- roll kind of rock and roll as we know it today, the modern blueprint rock and roll had been around since, you know, rhythm and blues in the forties and into the fifties was the early years sure. of rock and roll, but it really didn't arrive in a dominating way, the way that we know rock to just almost kind of dominate popular music and all the offshoots of it thereof. Um, right. It didn't arrive until the Beatles kind of brought it back to us from England. So Ringo, for whatever reason, and I'm still trying to answer this question definitively, I got Greg Bissonette on it because I just did a <laughs> festival with him in Australia and he, he's touring nice. with Ringo right now. Um, he plays oh, nice. those all-star bands. So he double drums, and not, not double drumming what we've talked about, but both of them are playing drum set together. Mm-hmm. Um, he plays with Ringo like 70% of that show. They're both drumming together. So you know, I asked him this question about Ringo playing match grip. But once I find out that answer and I don't know what that will be per se, I can make some guesses, but Ringo shows up on the Ed Sullivan show playing the match grip. And you have to, again, remember that prior to this time, most drummers, when they went to learn, learned traditional. That just had been the standard way of holding the sticks since marching era, you know, since right. hundreds of years, since marching drums came of, of age in the 1600s or whatever. So, but here's Ringo playing match grip. And, you know, drummers would, like, you'd see Gene or Buddy playing a solo in match grip, but you really wouldn't, they, their main default way of playing was traditional. Now here comes Ringo Starr, and he's just holding the sticks in the match grip the whole damn time. And of course, all those teenage kids, those baby boomers who'd been born after World War II, and all those kids in Europe, and all those kids all over the world, you know, that saw him Everybody wants to hold match grip now. I'm going to hold the sticks that way. So that's really, for me, the final piece of the jigsaw puzzle that goes, winds through that whole hundred years, 1865 to 1965. And that's kind of why I capped it at that point. And for me, that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, for me, when I did my research, I found a lot of stuff written already about the British invasion period and after. And mm-hmm. I think it's quite well documented as opposed to all the stuff that happened earlier. So the way I, I got to my century was sort of, I st- I, I already knew my ending point was going to be 1965, and then I just went backwards and backwards until it was like, oh, wow, I could like, talk about 100 years of stuff here. So that's right. sort of – So let's 
so going from 18 so what 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 styles were they playing like going from if you can just give us like a quick start of 1865 up to 1965 well in 1865 military music was very popular so you had like mm-hmm. you know what emerged because america you got to remember has always been in some war or another since since our since our birth so right. you know and especially the civil war that was all americans that we weren't fighting any foreign power so everybody in that war was americans and and you know it was an intense war it lasted 5 years there was modern technology in terms of uh you know it was the first naval sub submarine war that happened it was the the first um uh you know they had these new kind of of rifles so it was it was a giant step forward for warfare if you even want to say that i mean it was a giant step backward for for humanity in that the technology of war got better so the ability to kill got better um right and at the same time though a byproduct of that of course was that military drumming became extremely popular after the war ended you have all these bands people that were in military bands drummer boys who had led the charges and played all the calls and camp you know as far as here's when you get up here's time to eat you know i mean drummers did even before there were buglers drummers were the ones that communicated those messages because they were so loud they could be heard and on the battlefield it was like okay we're charging now we're retreating now we're going over here now we're doing this all that was communicated via drums so Hmm. you know John Philip Sousa and all that emerges out of Civil War. So military music became popular music. Every town in America had a bandstand and people would go out and see band concerts on the weekends, you know, and community bands would be involved with parades and civic events and dances and all that. So that was that was important and popular. Um, classical music was emerging and and drummers in the really in the 1800s started to become more involved in classical early classical music didn't have much percussion at all maybe triangle or tambourine or something but you know the idea of big drums in classical music was kind of it was like didn't make any sense but of course right. you know as military music becomes more popular and um we become more europeanized you know after the Civil War and, and in the 1800s, we, it became like, well, what's the latest fashion coming from Europe? So, you know, mm-hmm. we, we got into, into what was going on over there. And America just starts to create its own, you know, after 100 years of being in existence and having all these immigrants start to come, we start to come up with our own idea of, well, what is American music? And American music had drums in it. Great, you know. So, again, African Americans now are free. There is still a ton of segregation you know, throughout the country. So sure. African-Americans can't really work in, um, you know, in, in a lot of sort of standard typical musical settings. They can't get hired. So they are working in places like whorehouses and <clears throat> bordellos and sleazy bars. And, you know, not only, but that is the type of a place where African-Americans could get a job playing music. So, right. so out of that starts to develop ragtime. And by the 1890s, you know, ragtime is was created on pianos and to some extent on guitars and banjos. And it starts as a music that a singular musician plays, but it's great to dance to. And so all these styles, you know, I, I make this big claim in the Century Project that essentially music, popular music anyway, which is music of the masses, is essentially dance right. music. That, you know, if something is really danceable, that's probably what's going to get the largest number of people to listen to it or buy it. And if you think about today's pop music, it's essentially true. Something like Katy Perry or a lot of hip hop music or, you know, stuff that we would consider pop always has a strong beat. It's always something that is danceable. 
you know. Now, would you say that all this stuff is in four? Like, uh, well, you had waltzes, yeah. you know. Right, but in right. In general, yes, most of the pop music was in four and still is in four. You know, I mean, right. People love stuff in four. Four is, you know, group four bar phrases, four four time. It's it's just easily digestible. Yeah, I, I guess. think because we're we we have two arms and two legs, and so we do everything in a back and forth kind of way, based in kind of groups of two. You know, so we respond well to that. So anyway, you know, as you move forward, um, ragtime becomes more formalized, and um, the you know John Philip Sousa type bands start playing it. So it becomes above ground now. It becomes popular with the masses. And all of this sort of happens at the same time as the Victorian age is going out, out the window. So now it becomes hip, you know, if you're somebody who's on the cool side of things to start digging African-American musical styles. And right. um, as we move, you know, now New Orleans starts to happen in the early part of the 20th century. Um, and that musical style becomes popular. You know, all see, what I do in the Century Project is sort of look at all of the ways that events in history affect what happens with the music. You know, so right, what does right. prohibition allow the music to do? What does freeing the slaves allow the music to do? What does, you know, World War II mean to happen with the music? What, you know, all of these different things, how does that well, This stuff is, it's just fat, it just fascinating. It is. Me, man. I, it, fascinates it really me. does. Like, and it's sort of like, you know, I think a lot of people would be into this. Why is nobody talking about it? So that's right. why I did the Century Project. And it was kind of a risk, you know, I, but I kind of had a sense from doing the clinics that when I would do a clinic, I could talk for three hours about all this stuff. And I'd be talking about drummers and styles of music that nobody in the room knew anything about. And yet they'd be totally sitting there for three hours going, right. this is the most interesting clinic I've been to. I have no idea why, you know. And it, right, right. So I was trying to figure out, well, why? You know, what is it that, is appealing about this to people. And when I made the Century Project, I tried to put to put those elements into the Century Project so that it would translate to somebody watching it on a screen. Right. All right. So now in the early so the early part of the 20th century, so you have the the uh, the African American style starting to come out a little bit right. with, the, with New Orleans. Right. So and then so after World War One, see this is very interesting. After World War One in 1918, um, the soldiers that had been basically occupying the South since the end of the Civil War, like 50 or 60 years before that, basically the military had been taxed as a result of World War I. So after World War I, they all pull out. And that's mm-hmm. when segregation becomes formalized in the South because there's nobody to stop them from going, well, okay, you're free, but we're going to create these separate but equal laws. So you'll have your own, we'll all be separated. You'll have your own schools and your own drinking fountains and your own, you know, when Lewis Jordan comes to town, we'll put a rope down the middle of the frickin' room and whites on one side and blacks on the other, or he'll do two shows in a day, one for whites and one for blacks, you know what I mean? Like, so crazy. Crazy, right? But this I, was, I just, like in, that, after, things like that just don't, it just doesn't compute I know, to me. I but... it's bizarre. So after World War I, this was formalized in the South, and they, they got away with it because there was nobody to stop them. So right. one of the things that they did during this time was shut down the red light district in New Orleans, which was called Storyville. And that's when a lot of the great jazz musicians from New Orleans, black jazz musicians, came up to Chicago. Why? Because right around the same time, prohibition was enacted. And so suddenly drinking was illegal. So, you know, the mob takes over 
and starts bootlegging and selling booze and opening all these speakeasies and underground clubs. And of course, what kind of music are you going to want to have there? You're going to want to have music that's great to dance to and music that's also illegal music, right? which is jazz, which is black music. It's another place where black performers can go. So a lot of them leave New Orleans and start going out up north into all these other cities and bringing their jazz with them. And Chicago wasn't the only place where this was happening, but it certainly was in the 20s sort of the poster child for the Roaring Twenties. You get Al Capone, you have, you know, all that stuff going on. So then, again, it's another scenario where this underground music, black music, then becomes formalized. So by the end of the Twenties, you have huge jazz, big bands and orchestras. And, um, you know, you have, you have uh, jazz now goes from being kind of a novelty to being something that is an accepted form, you know, just like mm-hmm. earlier ragtime was a totally underground thing. Then it became an accepted form, morphs into jazz. Now jazz morphs into that in the thirties. Jazz turns into big band music. And uh, the backdrop to that is the great depression, 1929 stock market crash and the dawn of radio. And eventually in, you know, the end of the thirties, world war two. So these are really hard times for people. And, you know, they're looking for something to make them feel happy. Um, and big band music fills the void. And because it's the depression, a big band can exist because nobody can afford to pay 18 guys to go on the road with them under normal circumstances. But now nobody has work. Everyone's willing to work for free. Any job is a good job. And hell, if you're a musician, you're probably doing better than the average Joe. Plus, it's like, you know, all the booze you can drink. Right. <laughs> Remember, you know, prohibition wasn't lifted until 32 or whatever. So, uh-huh. I mean, it's like, you know, that's why the big bands come to the fore. And then once we get into World War II, they become, you know, part of the war effort and they become, you know, this kind of nostalgic thing uh, for people, you know, make them feel happy in this horrible, horrible times and everything is supporting the war effort. So, during that time, what happens? We bomb Europe to pieces. We bomb Japan to pieces and go into England and we go into Europe. We go into the East, the Far East, and we occupy those places for a while. And what do we do? We bring them swing music and jazz and bebop, which is happening now in the 40s. Right. And they fall in love with all that and embrace all that music because it represents the country that's helping them to get out of this horrific time period. So mm-hmm. they embrace all that because like America's cool and this stuff is fun. You know, so who are the kids growing up after World War II in England are all these young guys like Mick Jagger and John Lennon and Keith Richards and, you know, Paul McCartney and the Yardbirds and all these guys. And, you know, so in England, that thing develops by the 50s into what we call skiffle culture because nobody can afford, you know, a keyboard, but they can afford a guitar. So everyone picks up a guitar and starts playing guitar. They get really into the blues guys from chess records, you know, because blues and R&B have been happening in America during this period, the 40s and 50s, which is what I write about in my book. So, I mean, I could go on and on and on about all this, but you just see how... I would literally sit here for hours and listen <laughs> and listen no. to you talk about this, man. Well, I, I want people to go and get the Century Project because they'll get three hours of it, plus a lot of great performances, so they can see all these styles performed as they originally were on period era gear, there's 11 vintage drum sets in the Century Project. And, you know, that's a whole other piece of the puzzle is the whole vintage drum thing. The, you, know? the, you were saying about that, that DVD. It's, and don't take this the wrong way. It's like the shortest three hours I've ever watched. <laughs> 
Yeah. Like I, I watched it and I was like, first of all, I was like, oh my God, I can't believe, I mean, there, there's a ton of information. I've watched it like three times now, but there's, there's so much information in there, but at, when it's done, I'm like, okay, I want more, you know? So kind of like, and not that there wasn't enough in there. That's not what I'm saying. I was just like, it was so yeah. interesting that I no, was like, wow, I yeah. can't believe I did, that was three hours, first of all. And second of all, I was like, give me, give me more. I want, I want to learn more. I want to learn more. That's, and I just, it's, a, it's, it's an amazing project, man. It really is. It's, it's. Thank you. Thanks, man. Very cool. Well, I, I think that, um, I, I certainly think that my desire to translate or pass this information along in a way that was entertaining as well as informative, I think that goal was Absolutely. met. And like I said, I had been seeing the response in the clinics and I saw, look, people are, I mean, people would say the same thing. They come up and go, you could have mm-hmm. talked all day. This is so interesting, and I can't believe there's nothing out there about that. So I kind of used that. Um, I ran with that and tried to put a lot of those elements into the DVD. And I think, you know, hopefully um, it, it has the same impact, even if you're not in the same right. same room. Yeah, I, um, I can't. I don't have. I can't say enough about it. it was, I really thought it was great, man. Cool. And well, if people do want more, and I should put in a little sales pitch here for Traps because Traps is the companion DVD to right. Century Project. It is actually four hours long. So between the two DVDs, you get seven hours of stuff. Traps is, um, we take the 11 drum sets that we feature in the Century Project. So there's 11 vintage kits that sort of take you on the journey of the 100 years. I don't play on all of them. I play on about six or seven of the Mm -hmm. 11. But we do display 11. And what was great was one of the things I wanted to do was really show these drums in their best possible light. So we spent a lot of time cleaning the drums up, getting them in their absolute perfect original condition. And then before we even did anything else with the Century Project, the first thing we did is we shot the 11 drum sets. So we rented a revolving platform and lit the drums beautifully and then shot them from two angles, straight on, like mm-hmm. you normally see a drum set, awesome. and then from above. So people could really look at them from all angles. And so when you see the drum set in the Century Project, not only am I playing it and talking about it, and there's actually six drum sets displayed behind me in the main, yeah. um, in the main lecture portion of, mm-hmm. of the Century Project, but, but you also see these drums displayed. And they're, you know, it's like um, the idea was to make it look like, you know, like a new car, like a car I was actually going to say that. It's kind of like a, like a car show. Revolving, yeah. You know, and so – what I wanted to do was have a like a 30-minute special feature about the drum sets themselves because we don't really talk about the kits that much. We talk about playing styles and evolution and certain pieces of gear like, you know, when did the hi-hats show up and that kind of stuff. But we really don't get into all the nuts and bolts right. of the gear. And again, I had been a vintage drum collector because um, during my journey with Royal Crown Review, uh, I got really into vintage stuff because the guys were in the band were into all that. <clears throat> and all the stuff is in the in the DVD, they're all your kits, right? Not all. Not um, all of them. I think of the 11, we display eight of them are mine. So, you know, a fair number. Mm. Um, but, um, you know, I was sort of looking around going, there's never been a video or DVD made about Finnish drums. There's a bunch of books out there. There's a couple magazines, you know, Knocked So Modern Drummer and that kind of stuff that, that are very focused on vintage gear. And there've been a lot of great books written, but nothing that's sort of a DVD. So, I said, okay, um, I happened to – John Aldridge, who is one of the 
um, gurus of vintage drums in the world and a guy whose books I had read for many years and I'd become friends with, um, he was going to be in LA around the time that we were shooting these drum sets. So I said, well, why don't you come out and sit down with me so that you can be the expert and I'll just like do a Q&A with you and we'll have a conversation kind of like you and I are having right now right. about each of these 11 drum sets so we can kind of tell the story from the perspective of the gear. Well, between John and me, by the time we sat down and went through these kits, we had like six, you know, six hours of footage on tape. <laughs> so it very quickly became, well, why don't we do a second DVD as a companion piece to the Century Project so that if people dig the drums and what they're learning about the drums, they can actually really get into the, the, the whole story of vintage drums. So it's called Traps, The Incredible Story of Vintage Drums. And Awesome. It really is a story because we, we go through the whole journey with John, but we look at it all from the perspective of the gear. So we get into every possible permutation of gear you can imagine. We talk about you know, finishes and heads and cymbals and sticks. And you know, again, between my collection and, um, and the, the friends that I know who have amazing collections, I have a friend who has all this cool Gene Krupa memorabilia. So in there you see Gene Krupa's personal lighter, his personal drumsticks, his personal hi-hat stand that Slingerland made for him. You see um, you know, the, the bandstand, you know, the, the bandstands, um, the big bands all had those, those matching bandstands that would right. sit in front of each guy. Mm-hmm. So this one is, has a light inside it. You know, it's an original from Gene's original band, you awesome. know, from a little later on, from the 50s or something. So, you know, and I also um, went and, and got about 600 pages from vintage drum catalogs because if you're into vintage drums you got to get into the catalogs you know just like today's catalogs i mean people don't even really use catalogs anymore but that used to be when i was a kid you'd get the new ludwig catalog and Mm -hmm. spend you know days pouring over it looking at all the cool drum sets and fantasizing about which one you wanted to have and what would be your ultimate setup and you know all that kind of stuff so you know catalogs, drum catalogs, they go all the way back to the, some of the earliest ones I've seen are literally from 1904, 1908. Wow. Um, and, uh, so I, I photographed, um, made digital images of, you know, a ton of catalog pages. And also, uh, from my, um, uh, uh, what was I going to say? Uh, oh, also I have a huge collection of, of like, photographs, eight by tens, old promo photos of drummers. And I've been collecting stuff, you know, for 12, 13 years and I had all this and I'm like, well, why not really bring all this to life through these photos? So I think I, there's about 300 images in each, the century project and traps so that you're constantly just looking about, you're looking at the things you're hearing about visually being reinforced, not only by the drum sets themselves, but by you know, in the story that John and I are telling about, well, why did the, this company do that? And, you know, you're seeing the ads the company ran. You're right. seeing the catalog pages. You're seeing the drummers playing those. And the evolution of how these drum sets came yeah, to be exactly. as well. Exactly. That's awesome, And it's, it's also just a great story. So I, you know, try to encourage people, of course, to pick up both DVDs. Right. You know, some people are more into the gear than others. But even still, it's not really something that, that just – gearheads or lovers of vintage drums would appreciate right it's just um, it's, it's drumming in general it's, yeah it's just a cool story and i actually had one guy he was a student of mine it's so funny he said yeah i got you know the century project whatever amazon they, they ran out of it or something so he only was able to get traps and he said he said 
I put traps in disc one and I, and I stood in front of my television and watched the entire four hour thing and never sat down once. <laughs> was, like he was just that into it. So I was like, well, that's, that's pretty cool. You that's know? awesome. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's not just, um, it's not just, you know, it, it, these things hopefully have a larger universal appeal. Right. And that's, Absolutely. that's what I'm trying to sell. Them. Absolutely, man. And yeah. so, so you have, you have the century project. We have the commandments of early rhythm and blues drumming. And we're like, we're a little over an hour now, but I wanted to, I don't know how much time you have. I just want to touch on your, on your new book real quick. Oh yeah, please. Um, so it's the roots of rock drumming that you put out with uh, yourself and, and Steve Smith. So you were talking about it earlier. You basically took all these interviews with um, a, a bunch of a bunch of really influential drummers uh, over the years, and then kind of compiled them into a book, right? So do you want to tell us just a little bit more about that and and who's in the book and stuff like that? Absolutely. Well, the backstory to this book is that while I was doing the bulk of my interviewing sort of in the first, you know, like 2000 to 2008, say, um, Steve Smith had gotten very interested in the history and evolution of, of drumming and American music as well. Totally separately from me. Right. Unbeknownst to me and me unbeknownst to him. Um, and he had started to, he'd done a lot of research and, um, I think in 2003, he put out his History of the U.S. Uh, Beat DVD. And that looked at some of the history of the Century Project, but it, it spanned a different time period. He, he took his thing all the way up to contemporary times and got really into fusion and rock and all that stuff. Right. And so his look at the earlier stuff, he, he, he even said when he saw the Century Project, he said, well, this is sort of the, the big budget, full color version 120 millimeter print version of what I started doing with the history of the USB. Right. So, but he decided that he wanted to do a, um, a documentary about the evolution of rock drumming. Oh, okay. So he set out with, he went to Hudson with this, who had done his USB DVD and Rob, Rob uh, Wallace and Paul Siegel, who are, you know, they are the oldest guys in the drum DVD business, drum video business. They, they were the first ones to, to put out a drum DVD in the 80s, and they have been at the forefront since day one. So they so know what they're doing. DVD, yeah, so they know what they're doing, and, and they, you know, it's Hudson Music. That's their company. They, they, right. they do great, great yeah, stuff, absolutely. of course, as we all know. So um, he went to them and said, let's do a documentary about the history of, of rock drumming and the roots of rock drumming, because, again, he had seen that there was a lot of rock and roll happening prior to Ringo, but really nobody was talking about it. Right. So initially their idea was fairly broad. They wanted to interview these guys and make a full-blown documentary. Once they realized how expensive it was going to be to get clips of the Beatles and the Stones and Cream and Led Zeppelin and all of these bands, sure. you know, it's a lot different than coming up with like a big band clip from the 30s or something. You mm -hmm. know, it was going to be vastly more expensive than they could have afforded. So that was they did those interviews probably from 2000 to 2003 and then Steve did his USB project and that was that and everybody moved on and all these interviews kind of went up on the shelf and they always said in the back of their mind let's 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 take these interviews and instead of doing a documentary let's transcribe them and turn them into a book so they were talking about this around the same time 2010 I moved from LA to New York City 
and um, they, uh, you know, I, I, I did the Modern Drummer Festival in 2010. Rob and Paul filmed that. Hudson, you know, always put out a, a DVD of the MD Fest. I became friendly with them. I became friendly with Joe Bergamini, who works with the Hudson guys. He's kind of their their main uh, guy facilitator. Who gets? Okay. He's the project coordinator. And you hadn't worked uh, with Hudson before that, then I guess. I had not. No. No. And okay. um, you know, I'd actually had a few conversations with Steve and with Paul Siegel during that time period when I was working on my Commandments book in the early two thousands, and they were doing their interviews. But they said, "Look, why don't you know? You're here. Do you, do you have any interest in being the editor on this project? It's going to be a lot of work, but." Um, we want to get it out and do you want to do it? And I said, count me in, you know, it's right up your alley. It's right up my alley. And like I said, it was a chance to get inside the mind. You know, many of these guys I knew personally already from my own interviews, but some of them I had never interviewed and the chance to just dig in and really, you know, get the interview, you know, the, the, I, I'm always a fan of getting, the, the word from the horse's mouth, you know, mm-hmm. I think one of the things that gives me credibility as a historian is that a, I am actually a drummer. I'm a musician. So I actually play these styles right. and understand them from a player's perspective. And also that I have gone out and met the guys that made these grooves that recorded these albums and asked them, what were they doing? Sure. Rather than just some guy just doing the research on it. And exactly. Or, you know, a amateur drummer who's maybe an academic at a university you know who does it that way you know and uh, you know luckily i have the credentials as somebody who has a lot of experience as a writer um you know and college training and all that so you know that gives me a certain amount of credibility sure so i mean i was really the perfect person to do this and i was i knew it was gonna be a mountain of work and i'm probably getting paid you know a dollar an hour to do it but it really for me is more about just enhancing my understanding of the, of this whole scenario that, that we're involved with. So it was Absolutely. a great experience. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I, it was great working with them. Uh, I learned a tremendous amount. Um, and, um, out of that came this wonderful book and everybody was really dedicated to it. They all felt like this was really something that they, you know, was, was important that was going, that needed to be, you know, when you see the book, you'll see it's like, it doesn't look like a drum instructional book. It's eight by ten in size. Uh, it's two hundred fifty six pages. It's glossy. It's beautifully laid out. I mean, it's like a coffee table book almost. Awesome. You know more than it is like a drum typical drum instructional book. And it has a three hour DVD that comes with it that includes um, excerpts from each, not all of the twenty two interviews, but the vast majority of them. Probably. 17 or 18 of the guys that were interviewed, you can actually see excerpts from the interviews. Oh, awesome. Um, and see what these guys are like, see their personalities, you know, which is, which is so cool. I mean, Sam Lay, such a character, Sandy Nelson, such a character, you know, um, Earl Palmer, you know, Bernard Purdy, Hal Blaine. I mean, Jim Keltner, you know, these guys all are such, wow. they're, you know, they all, their personalities are strong because their playing is strong. I mean, what they brought, to the music they made is so impressive, has made such a difference in all of our lives that you want to see, you want to get a look at their kind of their headspace and how they talk and how they ramble and what their vernacular is like. You know, it's right, so right, right. much of a richer experience than just reading it out of a book. So, so I'm, I'm checking it out here. So it's, let's see, Bobby Morris, Dick Richards, Earl Palmer. Yeah. I should mention for some of these guys that aren't that well known, Bobby Morris was Louis Prima's drummer, mm-hmm. and 
his interview is incredible. It starts in Vegas in 1950. So that's really where we start is Vegas 1950. Dick Richards was um, Bill Haley's drummer. Bill Haley and the Comets. The Comets, right. Seminal rock and roll band. And then Earl Palmer, so Little ahead. Richard, and I mean, he's played with everybody, yep. though. Uh, DJ Absolutely. Fontana played with Elvis. Yep. J.M. Van Eaton, uh, he was a Sun Studio he, Records guy. He was the house drummer at Sun Studios. He did two-thirds of all the recordings that they did at, at Sun. Wow. Buddy Harmon, Roy Orbison, Nashville Studio guy. Yep. Um, and, and, I mean, Buddy Harmon, I should say, played on Pretty Woman, the intro to Pretty Woman. He played on all the Everly Brothers, all the Patsy Cline, uh, wow. Simon and Garfunkel. But more importantly, he was on 18,000 sessions. <sighs> he did three... Three, three or four three-hour sessions a day, seven days a week for 30 years. Good Just Lord. try to wrap your brain around that. So who's the most recorded drummer of all time? It's debatable. I know. Every, everybody claimed. I would say Buddy Harmon, Hal Blaine, and Earl are all right up there. There's also, um, we'll get to the three British guys, but they're one of the three British guys we interviewed is a guy named uh, Bobby Graham, and he's, um, he's, he was, he'd also be up there in contention. But... I, I, you know, in terms of pop music, I would have to say that that uh, Buddy Harmon's a pretty damn good contender. Yeah. All right. So Jerry J I Allison, he was with Buddy Holly. Buddy Holly's drummer, super influential, by the way, in so many ways. The Beatles, the Beatles named themselves the Beatles after the Crickets because they wanted an insect name for their band, and you could, you could <laughs> really, yeah, you could respell. Beatles and put beat in the word. Probably a lot of people don't even realize that Beatles, B-E-A-T-L-E-S, isn't the way you spell Beatle the bug. It's B-E-E. Right, right, right. Anyway, so yeah. Um, That's funny. Yeah. I never knew that. All right, so Hal Blaine, he's a famous L.A. He's, studio yes, guy. Yes, needs no introduction. Right. Idris Muhammad, Curtis Mayfield, New York studio guy. Yep. Uh, probably... Idris, I would say, is one of my one of my favorite drummers, yep. actually, and and known more as a jazz guy. But people don't realize that he was from New Orleans. Yeah. He came out of New Orleans. Um, there's a bunch of New Orleans drummers in the book because all of us really felt that New Orleans impacted early rock and roll. It impacted soul. It impacted funk. It impacted jazz. I mean, at every step of the way, for every one of those styles that I talked about earlier, New Orleans has had some uh, important role. You know, so even sure. today, the great New Orleans musicians are, you know, rewriting the books on what's possible to do mm-hmm. with music. And they actually with Idris Muhammad, I know that uh Stanton Moore's really really into him and he's yep. the one that kind of hit me to him years ago. Um which I I mean, I'd listen to his stuff but like never never to the extent that I that I do now, so. And before he became did a lot of the big jazz stuff in New York, he was one of sort of a mainstay of Blue Note Records in the 60s. In the 50s and the early 60s, he was working with guys like Curtis Mayfield um, and um, um, the Impressions and uh, a lot of these kind of seminal black artists that, you know, was, was, was like an Earl or a Bernard Purdy laying down these grooves. He also played on a lot of like the 70s um, Roberta Flack stuff. And he's oh, also, nice. by the way, the original drummer from the musical Hair. He, he opened that show, Hair, in 1969 really? or 70. Uh, whenever it, it debuted on Broadway, he was the cat. And he's the guy that played on uh, the original cast album. And, and uh, so that's him as well. You know, So it's like wow. he was everywhere. Jeez. All right, so Sam Lay, Paul Butterfield Blues Band in the Chicago studio guy. Yep, chess, he's our kind of our chess records guy to represent the Chicago blues scene. Also, okay. by the way, played on Bob Dylan's Highway 61 Revisited, 
played awesome. uh, at the Monterey Pop Festival behind Bob Dylan when Bob Dylan went electric. That was a huge conversation. Yeah, that was like thing. the Paul yeah, Butterfield man. band backed him up. He's on the Fathers and Sons records with Muddy Waters, which that was the record where Muddy Waters got together with um with uh, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards and, and mm-hmm. guys from the Yardbirds and it was like the new British guys playing with the old uh um chess guys, you know, coming together <laughs> playing the blues together. That's nuts. It's just, like I'm just re- keep reading through these. All right, yeah. Bernard Purdy, who I mean, has played on everything, you know, and his famous birdie shuffle. Yep, Bernard Purdy. That's an amazing interview. You know, uh, it's one of my favorites in the book. I just met him actually for the first Bernard, time. Bernard, yeah, he's he's still kicking, still playing his ass off, and yeah. is is. Uh, you know, it's a shame all this kind of Beatles crap. A lot of people now associate that with him and are mad at him because, you know, he claimed he played on a bunch of Beatles records. But whether you believe him or not or whether you like him or not, out of that, you've got to just read this interview because what – Wait, wait, wait. What, what's this all about? I don't even know what you're oh, talking about. Oh, well, maybe I shouldn't have even brought it up. It's, it's very controversial because <laughs> Bernard claimed that in the 60s he played on certain early Beatles things. He overdubbed certain things. Uh, before and after Ringo got in the band. And he says it's about 17 different tracks. And it's pretty much been debunked. But one thing I will say uh. in general about this, and, and what have even might have led Bernard to say this, is that a lot of the times, you know, people think about studio drumming today as like Steve Gadd and that, you know, it's this fancy thing and you go in and spend a year working on a record or a month or two months. You know, back when these guys were starting, these rock and roll session drummers, guys like Hal, Earl Palmer, the guys over in London, uh, the guys at Chess, Motown, you know, um, you got to remember that, that it was like a factory situation. These guys, right. these guys were not celebrated. They were not glamorized. They were good at doing something in a studio, but rock was even still considered to be not even real music by a lot of people and by a lot of musicians. You know, it was, you know, like when I went to study in the 1970s, you know, my teachers I had looked down their nose at rock. I mean, it was just still right. not something that a real musician did. So the fact that these guys were making their name by being the go-to call guys on all these rock records. Now, granted, rock records are selling millions of copies. But, like, you know, a lot of times they would do sessions with – they didn't even know who the artist was. It would just be called Artist B. And they would go in right. and do a whole album in two days. You know, uh, okay. Al and Earl talk about that in their interviews. Buddy Harmon talks about that. Um, you know, or – Maybe you were doing a session with Roy Orbison, but Roy Orbison wasn't Roy Orbison yet. He was just another guy, you know? Mm-hmm. So maybe you did 15 tunes with him and 12 of them made the record and the other three never came out until a box set was released. You know, they're not going to remember that. They're going to remember sure. I played with Roy Orbison. But people come right. up and say, hey, man, don't you realize that you're playing on this major hit or that tune? And it's like, you know, they say thank you very much, but they're not going to remember. You know, tell me about what that was like. Absolutely. I don't know what that was like. You know, in England, right. they have this this union rule that if you that that in order to make a, a vocal recording, you couldn't you couldn't make a recording where the vocalist came in later and cut their part. There had to be somebody in the vocal booth. So the way they would get around that is they would put the cleaning lady in the vocal booth. You know. Okay, go stand what in was the booth. what was the point of the what was the point of the union law so that so that you knew who you're recording for? I guess I, something to protect the musicians, you know, so they wouldn't get abused. 
that you know you had right. to you had to know what the song was or cut the song all at the same time or something. I, it's not quite clear, but but you know they would they they found ways around all that stuff. But I mean, these poor guys that were doing these sessions, I mean, it just broke them, you know. And they didn't even have yeah. you know they didn't even have roadies. I mean, they they had to go to three studios to do three three hour sessions in one day, and they had to pack their own stuff up and take it with them. And that's why when you see a lot of pictures of these guys in the studio in the fifties or in the early sixties, they have a kick, a snare, a hi-hat, one ride cymbal that's mounted on the bass drum, and one rack tom, and that is all they brought. Right, because they don't feel like hustling back and yeah, forth between studios. because first of all, drums were still loud and could bl- drown everything out, so you had to still be considerate of, of, you know, they're all in one room with no baffling, so, you know, you had to be considerate of the other instruments, so you couldn't play too loud. And, you know, it just was a different world, man. So you listen back to those records and you're like, yeah, well, the guy's hardly playing anything. He's playing really basic groove. He's obviously not even playing any big fills. You know, when you learn this backstory, right. you understand why. It makes sense. Well, that makes sense. Oh, okay. Yeah, So absolutely. it's, you know, then when you go to do Motown songs on your gig, you know, you understand right. don't overuse the ride cymbal. Don't play every fill down your tom-toms with a huge crash on one. So instead right. of crashing one, go back one and hit the ride cymbal a little harder. That's what Earl Palmer did, and that's where that crash on one comes from, the way. Hmm. You know? That's so interesting. So, yeah. That's awesome. So, so continuing the, on our list. Yeah, so where are we at here? Where uh, where we leave off? So Sam Lay, who we talked Sam about, Lay. Bernard Purdy, Roger Hawkins, Muscle Shoals. Muscle Shoals, Muscle Shoals another amazing interview and an amazing story. Muscle Shoals, those guys, you know, they were – Muscle Shoals, Alabama, was really almost a just a giant suburb of Nashville. It's only 100 miles south of Nashville, just across the Alabama border. And all these amazing recording studios cropped up there. And some of the most amazing, particularly soul and, and rock music of the 60s and 70s, was made there. Um, and these guys hmm. played on everything, man. Roger Hawkins is just one of the most unsung heroes. He played on Respect and all that early Aretha stuff. People think that was all done in New really? York or Detroit. No, it was done in Muscle Shoals, you know? Hmm. Um, so he played on the Aretha Respect, not the, the, the Otis Redding one. Right. That was Al Jackson right. on the Otis Redding one. But he played on the okay. Aretha Respect and he played on Mustang Sally. He played on, he played on uh, you know, uh, uh, I'll Take You There by the, yep. um, the Staple Singers, one of the greatest mm-hmm. tracks. He played on Son of a Preacher. Oh, no, it's not him on Son of a Preacher Man. But I mean, it's that Southern funk soul style yeah. that's just so freaking cool. Has, is the most, I like all that stuff. I mean, stuff if you want to know how to lay back a groove, listen to that stuff, you know? Right. And, you know, so, yeah. So Roger Hawkins, go ahead. Uh, Sandy Nelson, drum solo hits. Nelson, who was, who was one of the biggest rock stars of the early 60s before the Beatles and is totally unknown today. But he was the first, he was a teen idol who was a drummer, who made drum really? instrumental records that were enormous hits, sold millions of records. So his That's is a very nuts. interesting story. Uh, Smokey Johnson. So Smokey Johnson and John Boudreau are two other guys from New Orleans mm-hmm. who, as opposed to Idris and Earl Palmer, who left New Orleans and went to New York and L.A. respectively, they stayed in New Orleans and played on a lot of the most important funk and jazz stuff that came out of New Orleans in the 60s and 70s. So Dr. John, Irma Thomas, um, you know, just tons and tons of, of amazing Larry Williams, um, you know, Alan Toussaint. Uh, and they were the influences on guys like the Meters. You know, Zigaboo, right. on the Nevilles, on Harry Connick, on 
the the uh, Marsalis family. You know, these were the guys that mm-hmm. that that stayed in New Orleans and were the guys that influenced all the guys that would come out of New Orleans in the sixties and seventies that today, you know, we're familiar with. Wow. So then you have British rock guys, Brian Bennett, Bobby Graham, and Clem Clem Catini. Yeah. And again, this is a fascinating story that almost nobody in America knows about. The Shadows were uh, Brian Bennett's band, and they were a huge instrumental band. They were like the Ventures of England, except that they were Mm -hmm. way bigger and stayed hugely popular. They also, in addition to being an instrumental band that did kind of instrumental, cool, kind of surf instrumental rock, also backed up um, Cliff Richard, who is like one of the biggest pop idols in right. in um, in England. And uh, they're, they're, the, these three guys, their stories are just amazing. Their interviews are incredible because there was a huge scene in England starting around the same time that the big American rock and roll scene happened in the late 50s. They, they got hip to it really fast and jumped on it and had their own version of it and their own hits and a ton of hits that we – think of as being part of that early rock and roll thing were all mm-hmm. produced over there in England. You know, all that um, Lulu and, uh, um, you know, downtown Petula Clark and, you know, some of the other younger guys that were in the, in the, in the studios with these, with these drummers were guys like Jimmy Page, John Paul Jones from Led Zeppelin, mm-hmm. Ginger Baker from Cream, Jack Bruce, uh, Richie Blackmore from Deep Purple, um, you know, tons of these guys that went on to have careers later on in the 60s were all in the studios with these guys. And they were all teenagers. It's cool how all these things wind together. They do. They really do. Te- you know, it's amazing that, um, that like, you know, these guys, even more than Hal Blaine, you know, the, the guys that were in studios in the 60s, you have to remember, are orchestral musicians. They were the ones doing the film and television soundtrack work and backing up all of the recording artists, right? Right. And so when rock and roll starts to become popular, you got, you know, you got guitar players and drummers and bass players who are jazz guys who have absolutely no idea how to approach it. So the, the, the studios, the first guys that they were, started hiring regularly were, were rhythm section guys. So in England, the only guys that really could play rock and roll the right way who even understood how to play it were these guys that were like 16, 17 years old, like Clem and Brian Bennett and Jimmy Page and all these young right. you know, kids. And here are these young kids coming into the studios with these 30, 40, 50, 60-year-old seasoned pros who are just looking at them going, you little fucking piece of shit. Who do you <laughs> think you are coming in here? You right. don't even belong here. And here they are coming in, thrown into this, and, and the producers are going... I don't know what you do, just do that thing you do. Clem Cattini uh-huh. can't read a note of music, but he had the feel. And he just, then he became the go-to guy, and that was it, you know? And that's why the Wrecking Crew is called the Wrecking Crew. Hal Blaine dubbed them the Wrecking Crew because it was a whole group yeah. of young session musicians. And when they started showing up in the L.A. studios, the older musicians went, you guys are going to wreck the music business. Right, and they were all like, Dressed in like jeans and t-shirts. That's and, it. Everybody else wore yeah. suits and ties to work. These guys show up in scruffy jeans and t-shirts and sandals and long hair. And nailed it. And nailed it, you know. And the older guys just, it was another generation. It was a new generation. The right. older guys just couldn't play rock. And a lot of these guys in the book talk about that. Because what's great is that Steve Smith came up with this really great, um, he came up with this really great sort of blueprint of questions that he asked all the drummers. Every single and that's one of them. what's that's neat, cool. that when I was doing my interviews, I didn't really have 
like a formulaic set of questions that I was going to ask. Whereas Steve already knew, okay, I have this project and I want to see how all these different guys answer. So, you know, some of the guys, it's like they're, um, you know, they're, they're, um, like if you think about more the Earl Palmer guys and the guys that play with Louis Prima and, and, um, and, uh, 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 Bill Haley, right. You know, like mm-hmm. we said, these guys were jazz musicians. They didn't think of themselves as rock musicians at all. They were jazzers who just adapted to what was happening and made it work, you know, and, and thrived and, and they figured it out. Then, you know, there are guys like J.M. Van Eaton and, um, you know, who, who were a little bit younger, maybe just four or five years younger, and they're listening to Earl Palmer records and they're going out and playing gigs like Jerry Allison, Buddy Holly's drummer. They're, you know, going out and playing gigs where there's 17 year olds there like them who want to hear these hits. So they got to figure out how to do it. So they start self identifying as rock drummers, you know? Uh-huh. And then, you know, as it moves forward and forward, this just kind of evolves. But, you know, somebody like DJ Fontana. He wanted to be a big band drummer. He was a huge fan of Gene Krupa. So what he brought to the situation was, well, it still swings this rock stuff, and I can sure. play loud and hard, but this is, you know, I think of myself as a big band drummer. And he even says in the hmm. interview, one day I'd love to go play with a big band. That's a dream of mine. You know, so it's like... Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just really, really interesting to see kind of how these guys thought of themselves, you know. Right. So anyway, well, who's after the three British guys? I'm sorry, keep... No, that's, hey man, that's what we're here for. Yeah. So, uh, and then it goes into Carmine Apsey, Steve Gadd, Jim, okay, so, uh, Jim so, Kelton. Yeah, then you got the final four guys who we call the commentators. And mm-hmm. I wanted to call them commentators because they really weren't so involved with the very beginnings of, of, um, of rock and roll. They all came, the, the, the four guys are J-Mo from the Allman Brothers who came up by right. playing rhythm and blues in the, in the 50s. And into the 60s, um, uh, Jim Keltner, Steve Gadd, and Carmine. And what's great is that these guys were all very greatly influenced by the aforementioned players who we've already talked about. And they really were able to kind of take that knowledge and move it forward to the next level. And so they all kind of made their mark in the late 60s and then on into the 70s, of course, and the 80s when you're talking about someone like Gadd, you know, and Keltner. Right. Um, and... And so they have a great perspective. So that's why they're called the commentators because they're really commentating. So, um, but I, I would say that some of my most favorite interviews of the whole book are are Louis Prima's drummer Bobby Morris, um, um, Bernard Purdy, Buddy Harmon, Hal Blaine, uh, and Jim Keltner's interview is amazing because he, if you've read the whole book and then you get to Keltner. He kind of summarizes everything that a lot of these other guys were talking about and then puts it kind of in a much more he's, – he's good at sort of seeing the big picture. You know, Some of these guys, they just right. sort of talk about, well, I went here and I did this and I did that. And then some mm-hmm. guys are sort of thinkers and they're sort of like, well, you know, here's sort of the effect of what I've done or here's the bigger picture of how I look at it all. You know? it's, it's just great. So you get this nice kind of chronological move through the whole time period as you read the book and you come out the other side with guys like Keltner and Carmine too. Carmine's is great. You know, growing up as a young guy in the early 60s in New York and how influenced he was by all those things. 
you know, all, almost every guy in the book mentions Earl Palmer as an influence. And if they didn't know that it was Earl Palmer, they mentioned the, the little Richard and, 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 um, all the rock and roll stuff he played on is a big influence, you know? Right. And they, they didn't know it was him they playing it at the time though. Yep. A lot of the guys, that's awesome. You know, Cause of course back then, you know, these guys were not credited on these records at all. I mean, nowadays we all think about Hal Blaine, Hal Blaine at least made a lot of money out of his experience as a studio musician. Oh, I just listened to this interview with him the other day and he was talking about all kinds of stuff, Rolls Royces and mansions and Beverly Hills. He blew and, it all, you know, mostly because he was married yeah. and divorced like seven times. But, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, he lo- literally lost it all in divorces. But, um, you know, he, you know, some of these British guys were like the Motown guys. They were making like 15 bucks a song, you know, Ugh. and they, and they, you know, so that's why they were doing quantity. You know, they would do, you know, you do 12 songs in a day, six before lunch, six after lunch. You've cut right. a whole album. And, and for that time, that was good money. But, Sure. You think about some of those songs that have gone on to become hits, and they only made fifteen bucks. It's it's disgraceful. Yeah, yeah, that's lame. You know, the Motown guys. I mean, the, we we didn't get to the Motown guys in this book, but um, boy, their stories are heartbreaking. You know, the yeah. amount of hit records they played on that they just royally got screwed on. Well, there's the next book idea then. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's been documented pretty well, also. Yeah. Their story. You know. But I got uh, you. Anyway, so to pick up any of these products, they can go to your website. So if they go to DanielGlass.com, they can pick up the Century Project, the Commandments of Early Rhythm and Blues Drumming, and if they buy from the website, you get a larger portion of the profits. So everybody buy it from his website. Yes, and I and I and I will have the new book up there within a week. Um, the new book, what's cool is because, like I said, it's not a traditional drum instructional book. It's already, I believe, it's in Barnes and Noble and is being marketed to more traditional brick-and-mortar bookstores. Okay. Um, but it'll, it'll also be in guitar centers and all those places. So, um, okay, great. Yeah, and, and I do also, I should mention, if anybody wants to study with me, I have a, a pretty good Skype teaching practice. Um, it's well worth it, too. So if, if anybody out there wants to study with them. If you can't get to New York, um, you, can, you can reach me via Skype. Uh, I have students all over the world, Australia, UK, US, South America I've taught, uh, uh, Asia, you name it. And um, it's a great way to study with me because whether I'm on the road or not, I can always do lessons. I usually have a pad when I'm on the road and all I need is a Skype connection and we're in business. So, um, And they can just contact you right through your website as well, right? Yep. And I should mention just a couple other quick things as far as what's coming up. Yeah, um, man, absolutely. Because I know you're doing the Setzer thing. and Yeah, I just, uh, I, I'm quite involved with Brian Setzer these days. I just started work on a record with him in Nashville. It's a small group project. It's not going to be done until next year, but it's we got a great start on it, and it's going to be cool. It's like a, a small group rockabilly record, just a quartet. Awesome. Um, and then I'll be back out on the road with the Brian Setzer Orchestra this fall uh, in November and December. I think we start around November 12th or 13th. We go all the way through the end of the year. So that'll be, I think, 32 shows in 30, you know, 30 cities or something all across the country. Wow. Um, and... Um, I'm also presenting a clinic at the PAS convention, PASIC, this year, PASIC 13. Um, mm-hmm. And at that clinic, I'm going to introduce a couple of major projects I've been working on. Um, I've taken the timeline from the Century Project. If you get the Century Project, it's a beautiful packaging, and inside it has an insert that if you unfold the insert, it opens up into this beautiful timeline that takes you through the whole 100 years. So mm-hmm. I've taken that timeline and blown it up into and changed it quite a bit 
but we've we've turned it into a poster with Vic Firth that'll be the, one of the educational posters. We're premiering that at um, at PASIC. Um, and what's cool about that is I've also shot. There's going to be 17 little um, stopping points along the way, 17 dates along the timeline that address a lot of these these things that that I that I talk about in the Century Project and elsewhere. And for each one of those, I shot like a five-minute video with Vic. So you'll be able to not only learn from the poster, but then you can go find the video online and actually hear me talk about that in, in person. Oh, that's cool, man. So that will premiere cool. at my clinic um, uh, November 16th, Saturday, uh, in Indianapolis. At the I will Gates be there. Convention. Yeah, and then um, I'm also premiering at that show. Uh, the show will be in Indianapolis. The PAS has their main offices there, and they have a museum that not a lot of people know about, but it's an incredible museum dedicated to all things percussion. It's like a three-minute walk from the convention center where the show will be happening. And um, I've been working with them since January of this year to mount a History of the Drum Set exhibit there, uh, which will be incredible. Um, it, It features not only stuff from Century Project, but it goes all the way up right until today. So we've got two of the kits from the Century Project. You can see those in the flesh. Nice. Um, we've also got um, a Neil Peart kit, one of his early Rush kits. We've got a John Bonham kit, not the Vistalite kit, but the Green Sparkle Ludwig. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are trying to get a Ringo kit right now. Um, we've got one of the, uh, we do have a Vistalite kit or a clear plexiglass clip from a right. Madonna tour. Um, nice. Got some Hal Blaine stuff and just a ton of amazing, you know, drums. And Symbol Zildjian has given us some stuff from their vault that was going to be a special exhibit. Um, Jim Pettit has sent a ton of catalogs from his collection. We're going to have album covers. And, you know, again, the idea is to just bring the whole history of the drum set to life from its very beginnings all the way up to, to, to today. That's so, awesome, man. Yeah, That's it's going to awesome. be really exciting. Do you ever, you don't sleep, do you? You never sleep. Well, not not much. No. How much? <laughs> I, I think next year in 2014, I'm just going to collapse in a heap. I'd just be I done. It just that's it. I'm finished. Three years in a row now of just and really since I moved to New York because I've been working to get my career together here too. So right. it's been like four years of nonstop craziness, and I, I my body needs a bit of a break, and I need to like rest a little and get back to the gym and just kind of get back in shape again. As right, far right, as right. you know, I've just burned myself out really hard. So. It's great what you're doing though, man. It really is. I think that there's, I think you're really breaking some, some new ground with the stuff that you're doing and really getting people to realize what all goes into, uh, you know, the whole history of, of drums and where it came from and, and where it's going, which I think is, is awesome, man. I'll just tell you kind of what my overall goal is, is that, and at the beginning you had mentioned like as a young drummer, you know, most people start off playing rock and then you kind of learn about other styles, jazz or funk or hip hop or whatever, blues, swing. And, and, you know, you get into all these different areas, right? And when you do, there's, there's, you know, you can go read a Stanton Moore book to learn about New Orleans funk. You could pick up, you know, a, a, a whatever, um, a, you know, a, 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 a Horacio El Negro Hernandez book to learn about the clave or a Chuck Silverman book, you know. And what I want is for the evolution and the study, sorry, the study of the traditions and evolution of our instrument to be just as accessible, just as accepted, and just as available to people as an option. And I think that's really what I'm trying to do. I, I think you're getting there, man. I, th- I really do. I, I think you're, 
you're pretty damn close. Well, it's exciting to see this stuff being accepted in a mainstream way. Because I'll tell right. you, when I started, it was not. And I was told by a lot of people, you know, no one's interested in this stuff. Right. I remember you telling me that when we were out in L.A., you were saying that it was hard to get people to really buy into this whole idea that you had. Yeah. And, and now I've, I've made a lot of believers. That's and, awesome. You know, both within the industry and the educational realm and just in the world of drummers and drumming. Right. So it's exciting. And obviously that's, that's the goal. That's the, path. that's great, man. I'm really, I'm, I'm happy for you. I'm glad to see that all this stuff is, all this hard work is, is finally paying off and, and people are starting to give you the recognition that you deserve for it. That's great. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to, to talk with you today and, uh, express uh, my thoughts about all this stuff man Thank absolutely man my pleasure for us yeah i appreciate it and hopefully this uh this show will really really get out there and uh you know get a bunch more listeners and and things like that so it's just the beginning so i really appreciate you doing this you know the site actually is not even live while we're doing this yet but it will be and uh there'll be a bunch of interviews and information on there and and everything so i really appreciate you doing it thank you so much no worries. My sincere pleasure, Nick, and good luck to you with it all. Thanks, buddy, and I'll, uh, I'll talk to you soon. All right. All right. Thanks, Daniel. So that was the one and only Daniel Glass. Be sure to check him out at danielglass.com. Sign up for our mailing list at drummersresource.com or check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash drummersresource. If you want to say hello, be sure to get at me on Twitter at Nick underscore Ruffini, R-U-F-F-I-N-I. And until then... I'll talk to you soon. Keep drumming. Thanks for listening.